Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. That is an amazing report. Uh, thank you, Pete, so much for that. I'm really excited to be uh, launching today a new life-changing eight-part series exploring the absolute heart of Jesus' teaching, which is the Beatitudes. This is a series called Attitude, Living Beautifully in a Broken World. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to explore each of these great famous blessings of uh, Jesus. If the Lord's Prayer is the creed of Jesus, and I think it probably is, then the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 to 7, and then at its heart, at its start, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, this really is the manifesto of Jesus Christ. Uh, John Stott, the late great John Stott, describes the Sermon on the Mount as the best known but least obeyed a part of Jesus' teaching. It is, he says, the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Let's just feel the force of that a second. Over the next eight weeks together, we are going to dare to explore the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. And we've got two aims as we do this, and they're ambitious. The first aim is we want to help you to live more beautifully in a very ugly and broken time. Uh, it's obvious that our world is broken. I mean, it's actually sort of unthinkable that war is raging in Europe just three or four hours' flight away from us right now. It's shocking, as we've just heard, that only six days ago, an earthquake hit south-central Turkey and northwest Syria. And as you all know, the death count so far is tens of thousands and the UN is describing it as the greatest humanitarian disaster in a century in that region. And close to home, if you've been following the news this week, you'll see that the Church of England seems to be on the verge of fragmentation, uh, which is heartbreaking, both internally and within the worldwide Anglican communion. The world's shaking. Jesus is not insecure about this. It doesn't surprise him. In fact, he said, in this world, you will have suffering. And elsewhere, he said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And in his great high priestly prayer before he died, one of the key things he prayed was for unity in the body of Christ, presumably because he knew it would be contested. But what Jesus does is comes and says, within this trouble, within this division, within this brokenness, within these wars and rumors of wars, here is how you are to live and gives his manifesto. 
the psychologist uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross observes something that I think we all know to be true. She says, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These people, she says, have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people, she says, do not just happen. She is saying what Jesus says, that it is possible in an ugly world to live beautifully, but it's not just automatic. It's not just you were born like Pollyanna or something. It is in spite of our suffering that as we choose the way of Jesus, we can live beautifully. So that's our first aim. We want to be more beautiful uh, as a church in two months' time. But secondly, uh, and this is an even more ambitious aim, we would like you all to become Christians. Again. I mean, one or two of you might be the first time. We want to present to you Jesus Christ in such a way over the next two months that you think, wow, I'd forgotten or I never knew how beautiful he is. And we want to present the teaching of Jesus to you in a way over the next two months that you think, oh my God, correct language. I never knew it could be this challenging. I, I, I don't even know whether I've got what it takes to do this, but I really want to. I think I'm going to become a follower of Jesus again. So our aim over the next two months is to help you live more beautifully in an ugly world and get saved again. And as one of the senior pastors of this church, uh, I want us to look more like Jesus in two months' time. So it's a small task, but we're going to give it a stab. Is that okay? Okay, great. So let's now actually do this. Let's uh, read, recenter ourselves, anchor ourselves afresh on the absolute unassailable essence of Christ's teaching. And uh, I think Wendy Thomas is going to come and read for us. This is Matthew 5, 1 to 10. We're going to read this every week through this series, these 10 verses. If you're able to do so, would you like to stand out of reverence for God's word? Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God. Do be seated, please. Thank you, Wendy. This is the greatest speech in world history and one of the shortest. 4th of June, 1940. 
Winston Churchill addresses Parliament with his famous We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches speech, the words that galvanised a beleaguered nation to rise up and resist fascism and ultimately to prevail. 1,485 words. 28th of August, 1963. Martin Luther King addresses a quarter of a million people in the Capitol Mall, Washington, D.C., with his famous I Have a Dream speech. The next day, the New York Times comes out in his favour. It is the turning point in the civil rights movement in America. 1,667 words. <laughs> 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ climbs a mountain, sits down, and lets loose an unstoppable revolution. 96 words. Let's just think about the context a second. First of all, it's easy to miss that little introduction that Wendy read so beautifully, but Jesus goes up on a mountain to deliver this 96-word speech. And, and the risk is that we sort of think, well, it's nice, he's having a little hippie moment. Some of us are old enough to remember Monty Python's version of this. You know, others, it's, it's just a sort of back-to-nature moment, him and 12 suspiciously bearded hipster disciples having a chat. But actually, if you look at the last verse of the previous chapter, verse 25 of chapter 4, what you will see is this. It says, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan had followed him. So the Decapolis was the ten great cities around that region. One of them is Damascus, the capital of Syria. That is a 70-mile walk away. Okay? So there are these vast crowds gathered around Jesus who have walked for hours and days and some even for a week to be with Jesus. So there's a buzz, there's a political agitation, there's an excitement in the crowds around Jesus. This isn't a hippie rural idyll. This is highly charged. And Jesus climbs the mountain to speak and there's a lot of talk about where that mountain is. And it's probably not, sorry if any of you have been to Israel, you might want to get your money back. It's probably not where the church, the Beatitudes, is built. But there is a lovely sort of hill overlooking Galilee that's the favoured spot. And why was Jesus doing this? Well, um, first, if you want to speak to a crowd, you don't try and get rid of a crowd. Secondly, uh, you, know, you know, if the crowd's around you, you speak to them, you don't, you, you don't go for a walk in the country. Jesus seems to be here doing something that would have made a lot of sense to the Jewish mind. Because the very nature and identity of being Jewish is rooted in the moment where Moses climbs a mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. And that revelation has defined your nation ever since. And so it seems to be here that Jesus is saying, I am going to release a new Ten Commandments to you in the way of Moses. And if you say to me, mm, Pete, I think you might be stretching that a bit far. Let me just say this. There's uh, no question at all that Matthew's gospel is divided into five sections. And uh, each of the five sections ends with a particular uh, phrase, just to, to mark it off clearly. The phrase is, when Jesus had finished. 
And a number of theologians suggest that those five sections exactly mirror the five books of the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, and so on. So there may well be a sense here that Matthew, one of the most Jewish of the gospel writers, is deliberately trying to mirror the very foundations of the people of Israel around Moses here in Jesus Christ. So it's unlikely just to be a little throwaway comment. Yeah, he went up on a mountain to deliver this. Secondly, it says Jesus sat down, and we go, that's nice. He's tired. He's been climbing a hill. He gets out his egg sandwiches, has a sit down, shares a few thoughts. No, 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 no. In Jewish mindset, a rabbi sat down to deliver a sermon. Unlike here, make us work hard. I, I could have been sitting down there nice and company in a beautiful red velvet chair, but Peter makes me stand in front. You all get to sit down. What's that about? <laughs> Rabbis would sit. So Jesus is deliberately, intentionally adopting a posture of authority in the way of Moses to deliver these 96 words. And then what does he actually say? Well, he keeps saying, blessed are you, blessed, blessed. Who, who is blessed? What does this word blessed mean? It's a word in our culture that's often, you know, trivialized. Oh, bless, you know. When Beyonce won the most Grammys ever, uh, this time last week, last Sunday, uh, her speech was this, I want to thank God for protecting me. Thank you, God. God bless you. What does she mean by bless here? Well, the original word translated as blessed here is makarios. And it literally, it's, it's impossible just to narrow it down into one word. You can certainly translate it as blessed. That may well be the best. But it's got a very, very strong sense of happy are you. That's why some translations do translate the Beatitudes, happy are you if. The problem with translating happy, and probably the reason why the NIV, the translation we use, chose blessed, is that in, particularly in our culture, we see happiness as just an emotional, subjective state. Oh, I feel happy today. You know. And, and there's something here that's not just about subjective emotion of happiness, but about the objective way in which God perceives you. So it's not just, I feel happy, but God's saying, I don't really care how you're feeling, you are happy. Does that make sense? You know, it's like a good parent, you know, your kid's screaming and you're like, yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely fine. It's just 10 p.m. and you've had too much sugar. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you, you are actually fine. You just think the world is falling apart. And so God speaks over us. This is the definition of happiness. And that's significant because we live in a world that is crying out to know how to be happy. If you walk into a newsagent and, uh, you know, pick a magazine off the shelf, what do we have? Good housekeeping. You know, if I can just bake the perfect Victoria sponge and have a velvet sofa, I will be so happy. <laughs> Men's health. Washboard physique. You know, design a stubble, six pack, happiness. And the survey said, <laughs> you know, what are we looking for happiness from? Where do we find happiness? Yale, 
one of the greatest universities in the world, you know, one of the Ivy Leagues there in America, found out that whilst its students were all kind of basically the cleverest, nerdiest people on earth whose futures were guaranteed because they were going to graduate with a degree from Yale, they were also miserable. And so they launched a course on how to be happy. This went on to become the most popular class in over 300 years at Yale University. In fact, in 2019, there were 22,522 enrollments. How to be happy. And then with COVID, they went online and it went crazy. And in 2020, they had 860,494 enrollments. How to be happy. How can we live the happy life, the blessed life? What is it? Well, Jesus' way of happiness is countercultural, to say the least. He pretty much the least. He pretty much grabs anyone that our culture today would say loser and says blessed happy. This is a manifesto of the underdog. It is an inverted, upside-down worldview. Blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit. And we live at a time where no one wants to be seen as the poor in spirit. Our influences are those who've got a certain swagger, a certain confidence. Beyonce, Andrew Tate, where do we look? A certain je ne sais quoi about them. We don't tend to become one of millions of followers of someone who just goes around saying, sorry, I'm a bit of an idiot. And Jesus comes in and says, listen, if you're here today at church saying, I don't think I'm a very good Christian, and I think I'm a bit of a mess, he looks at you and goes, oh, you're blessed. It's the opposite of our culture. Blessed, he says, are those who mourn, not those whose lives are pain-free. In Aleppo today, in south-central Turkey today, mothers who this time last week had children alive and now have lost their children, their hearts are breaking and they are mourning and they are weeping. Jesus goes and finds them and looks them in the eyes and hugs them deeply with tears in his own eyes and says, you're the priority. You are the one who is blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, not those who are crazily, narcissistically self-confident. Interesting who we vote for these days, isn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not the apathetic, yeah, might go to church today. Those who are passionate about the Lord. It's one of the things I love about Hannah. When she, when she preaches the Bible, it's like she's entering her happy place. She just loves it. You know, it's just with Mike Strong in Woking. I mean, that guy, he just wants more of Jesus all the time. He's launched this thing called The Pursuit because we just got to pursue Jesus. And this is countercultural. And you get the feeling that once that runs out of steam, he's going to launch something called The Pursuit of the Pursuit because he's just never backing down. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Blessed are you. You know that this is really personal for me right now. Um, 
it was two months ago today that my, my dear mum had this horrible, sudden, massive stroke that's left her in hospital ever since. And thank you for your prayers. But I can say this to you. There are a few things that make you feel poor in spirit more than the acute stroke ward of a hospital where people are literally screaming in some of the rooms and where the guy you just met in the waiting room is in tears because he's been asked to a meeting to discuss end-of-life planning and where your own dear sweet mother is lying there in the middle of it all unable to speak, being fed through a nose in her a tube in her nose. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the helpless and the vulnerable and the frightened and the forgotten. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The thing is, the manifest of my Jesus makes sense in the broken places of the world. There's a lovely story that the preacher Tony Campolo tells about one of these um, kids' camps they do in America, Christian camp, all these boys. And uh, the, the camp was split down into little sort of groups. And every day, each group had to nominate someone to lead the devotionals in front of the whole camp, hundreds of people. There was this one boy on the camp called Billy, who had very severe cerebral palsy. He struggled to speak. He struggled to coordinate his movements. Tony Campolo describes how angry he became as he watched these boys. Kids can be so cruel, can't they? Mimicking Billy as he walked awkwardly around the site and laughing at him as he tried to speak. And then to make matters worse, when it was time for the group that Billy was in to choose somebody to do the morning devotional, they thought it would be funny to choose Billy. So Billy walks down to the front and he struggles to climb the steps and there are boys along the front row sniggering. Billy gets to the podium and he's leaning on it just to hold himself up. And with every ounce of effort and dignity he can muster, he says this. Jesus loves me. And I love Jesus. That's it. Silence fell on the room. And boys who minutes earlier had been snickering began weeping and some began kneeling on the floor and the spirit of God began to move in that auditorium as young cruel boys repented 
Tony Campolo says that over the years he lost count of the number of pastors and ministers that he met who said, I gave my life to Christ at a camp through the shortest sermon I ever heard preached by a boy with cerebral palsy called Billy. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Final story. The greatest beer in the world, according to numbers of online data, is West Vleteren 12. It's made by Belgian Trappist monks. Just telling you that. And the thing with West Russian 12 is this, um, when it got voted the best beer in the world, marketing people went to see the abbot and said, you need to seriously scale up production because you can't just be knocking this out. You know, 23 farting monks won't do. And the abbot said, oh, no, you don't understand. We've given up money. And, um, we, you know, we make beer, we're pretty good at it, but... We're here to pray, so we don't really want to back off that. And then the strangest thing happened was they broke capitalism because suddenly, to this day, if you want to get West Version 12, you can't get it in the supermarket. You have to phone the monastery. If you're lucky, someone will answer. <laughs> and the monk will take your registration plate and your name because he's saying, well, we just can't make enough. So you can only have one crate every two years, max. And then you have to turn up at the monastery where the farting monk comes out and gives you your crate and says, I'll see you in two years, no sooner. And so they didn't work any harder, but they made just as much money. <laughs> I knew this, and I always rather fancied a West Veteran 12. Tricky to get. One of the nice things about being in this church, we have lots of visitors from all around the world. And um, Sammy and I, before we moved onto the barge, we used to have, often have people live with us. And one time we had a wonderful Belgian guy uh, who came to, to, to live with us. And as a little thank you, he just casually passes me this little black bottle of beer. Says, I brought you a gift from Belgium. And I look at it blinking. It's West Fletcher and 12. Only a tiny little, I'm like, Oh, my goodness. This is amazing. And I was so excited about this West Version 12. I was, got a bit paranoid. I have a lot of friends who are just idiots. And, and um, I, yeah, I could just imagine Peter Burton coming round <laughs> to watch the snooker and just cracking open my West Version 12 and spilling it down himself whilst I have an absolute like meltdown. So I hid it. I, I got right into the back of the cupboard and I put it right down behind something else. Because I, 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 this, this was going to be for a special occasion, right? And we later found out that the guy, the Belgian guy giving it to us was a bit offended because I hadn't drunk it. I, I just hidden it away. It was like I didn't take seriously this thing he'd given me. Here's the point. If the Beatitudes mean anything at all, it's this. 
that those who are hidden away are actually the most precious. That just because you're not visible does not mean that you are not valuable. Sometimes God actually saves and hides you because he has something bigger and better for you in the future. It's the story of the Bible. King David, hidden as a shepherd boy. Joseph, hidden in prison. Anna and Simeon, hidden until old age. Jesus, hidden for 30 years. You may be here today feeling hidden as a mom of small kids. The world is going off doing its super important things and you're wiping bottoms and worrying about sandwiches. Or you may feel that you've messed up in some way in your life and you're doomed to some dreadful plan B. You've missed it. Or you may feel that you are just bypassed. Listen, it may be that like Anna and Simeon, you think I'm just too old now for the radical way of Jesus. I want to say this to you. The world probably has given up on you, probably isn't noticing you, but Jesus Christ steps into the room and looks at you and says, I see you, I cherish you, you are blessed, you are the most important in my kingdom, you are valuable to me. And so we're just going to finish now in, um, with a moment of quiet prayer. We've run out of time, so we're just going to do this. It'd be great. Who's playing keys today? Come, come, come on down and just play something appropriate. <laughs> well, you just don't know. You might break into Beyonce. Or... <laughs> Who, frankly, has featured more in this talk than I expected. <laughs> she just gets everywhere, doesn't she? I know. So... Let's just take a moment at the start of this series quietly to get our hearts right before Jesus Christ. To, 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 to open our hearts before him, to say, I, I want to see you again. And, and I, I want to be surprised and amazed by you again, Jesus. And actually, I want you to disturb and challenge me again. I want you to disrupt me again. I want to get saved again. And you may just like to be thinking about your own family or your own workplace and ask who is the person who the world will most easily mock or ignore or bypass that I might prioritize and bless this week.
And finally, for those who resonate deeply with this sense of being hidden, of being bypassed, of being forgotten, of feeling that you're not valuable just because you're not visible. I pray for you. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ to know that you are loved, to know that you are the apple of his eye, that he sees you and hears you and still has great plans for your life. 